Good afternoon. And thank you so much for being here. We are certainly in for a treat today. Uh, we have Dr. Sandro Gullier and his latest book, Contagion Next Time. Time magazine named the doctor epidemiologist innovator. Thomson Reuters called him one of the world's most influential scientific minds. Born in Malta, he spent his formative years in Canada, entered adulthood in the US. Being so multinational, very early in life, he has adopted global health as his passion and a lasting belief in the potential to always improve the human conditions. He has identified that the only way to eliminate suffering at the individual and community levels is to look at health from a macro perspective. Being a physician and an epidemiologist, he is the dean Robert Knox Professor at Boston University School of Public Health and the youngest person to ever hold this position. I don't know when he would have time to sleep because he is a prolific writer, credited as one of the world's most cited author of social science. His academic career includes roles at Columbia, University of Michigan, New York Academy of Medicine. He holds an MD from University of Toronto, a graduate degrees from Harvard and Columbia. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Gilear. Thank you so very much for that very kind introduction, and thank you for uh, hosting me here in Dallas. It's really wonderful to be here. It's certainly nice to get out of Boston weather in uh, December, so that right there makes the trip worth it. And uh, it's really wonderful to be here with you today. So as you know, I'm here um, uh, linked to the release of uh, my new book, The Contagion Next Time, which you just heard mentioned and is over there, and I'll come back to it at the end. And what I thought I would do, I, I really am very interested in your questions and comments. So I'm just going to speak for 15, 20 minutes to give you a frame for what the book is about. And uh, by way of provoking everybody's thinking and uh, by um, a way of really summarizing the top level agenda of the book. And I call this what went wrong and how we can do better. Now, in many respects, when you invite somebody whose uh, job description is Dean of a School of Public Health, you're expecting me to talk about what went wrong. So I thought I would start with the opposite, which is to talk about what went right during COVID-19. And I do think that there has been a lot that has gone right in COVID-19. And um, we, you know, I'll summarize it in just two pieces of data. So number one is this piece of data here. And I realize not all of you can see the slide, but I'll describe what I'm showing on the slide. The when COVID hit this country, which was really in full force in March of 2020, the, this was a disease. It, it's sort of hard to remember today in December 2021. You need to go back, right? Go back in your mind to February of 2020. We had never really heard the term COVID. It was like, like you know, it's, it's sort of gobbledygook. Never heard of it. Patients start coming to hospital in March of 2020. And the mortality rate at that time 
was about 25%. About one in four people who presented to hospital with this new disease, scary disease, were dying, which is what made it a new scary disease. And hospitals and health centers adapted. And within just a couple of months of this new disease, never seen before, our hospitals were able to drop the mortality rate to under 5%. So really, when one thinks about it, that is a real triumph, that within a couple of months, for those of you who are looking at the slide, which you see, this is the blue lines I'm looking at, they went down from about 25 to under 5% by June. So mortality rate went down fourfold or fivefold within just a few months. That is actually extraordinary. That is a testament to the fact that hospitals, health centers, did a good job of adapting to a disease that was previously unknown. So that's one thing that went right. The biggest thing that has gone right in the context of COVID is the vaccines. This is uh, just a, a picture from newspaper when the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines came out. And it's actually hard to overstate how remarkable the vaccine development was in the context of COVID. That we went from disease hitting the country to vaccines ready for market in eight months. The fastest we had ever done that before was three years, and that was in the case of mumps vaccines. Normally, vaccines take 10 plus years to develop. And of course, it wasn't that the mRNA technology that was the platform for these vaccines came out of nowhere. We had invested in it for more than a decade before. So it was technology we had invested in for more than a decade before. But fundamentally, we got very safe, very effective vaccines in an extraordinarily quick period of time. You may remember, again, it's hard to remember now. If you go back to June of 2020, we were having discussions, what would we do if we had a vaccine that was 50, 60% effective? Would we use that? Well, we ended up with not one, but two vaccines at the same time, both more than 90% effective. So that's really an extraordinary thing. And we, as a country, did that well. So those are things that went well. Now, what are things that did not go well? Because a lot of things did not go well. Now, for one thing, at a very simple level, the whole country has been sort of on fire in the context of COVID. This is a map from the New York Times, and I actually showed this map. This was the density of COVID because the newspaper chose the color red to show the density. And, you know, if you were an alien coming to this country and you didn't know what this was about, you know there's nothing good. Like, nothing good ever looks like that. Nothing good ever looks like, uh, you know, a whole country is on fire like that. Um, we have, as a country, had the highest mortality of any country in the world. Um, not the highest per capita, although per capita is sort of hard to compare because uh, you end up with some very small countries with a higher rates per capita and that's, that reflects sort of variability in the numbers. Um, but we didn't do well in COVID. Like, no, no matter how you look at it, in terms of number of people who've died, number of cases, we're now close to 800,000 deaths. Um, uh, we haven't done well. About, there's been about 5 million deaths in the world, just to give you a sense. About 5 million deaths in the world, we've had 800,000 of those. That means we've had one-sixth of the world's deaths. We are, just by comparison, we are 4% of the world's population. So just to give you a sense of the disproportionate burden, we've had one-sixth of the death, one-sixth is about 16 17% of the deaths, and we're 4% of the world's population. So we've done, so essentially, if you, if you were to think of it as a global pandemic, we've done four times worse than we should have done by way of population distribution. There's nothing good about that. That is bad. To put it in context, this looks at the leading causes of death in 2020. So 2020, the leading cause of death was heart disease. Oops. Sorry, I did something. Can you uh, save me? 
There we go. Thank you so much. The leading cause of death is heart disease, as always, is then cancer, then COVID. So, 2020, the, leading, the third leading cause of death was a disease. Remember, you had not heard about in Christmas of 2019. So suppose I were to tell you today that in 2024, there's going to be a disease that you don't know what it is. It's going to be called some combination of letters that you've never heard of that by 2024 is going to be the third leading cause of death. How would that make you feel today? You'd feel like, oh, that's a problem, right? You'd feel like, you'd feel like what can we do to avoid that? Like, that's not a good thing. Like, like what should we do to avoid that? And right, so, so even today, telling you that, like, you can feel it, right? When, you, when you're like, there's going to be a disease. It's going to be ABC disease. And 2024 is going to be third leading cause of death. You're like, whoa, how do we prevent ABC disease? Well, that's what COVID did. Came from nowhere and became third leading cause of death. And importantly, and I'm going to come to this much more in, in the next few minutes, the consequences of COVID were not experienced evenly. The consequences of COVID were experienced very unevenly in this country. And uh, just to show one illustration of this, this is the loss in life expectancy from COVID. So just to ground it, the, this is life expectancy loss by large gender and racial groupings. The group that lost the least life expectancy is white women who lost 0.7 years of life expectancy. Now, let me put that in perspective. We, white women as a group, have not had a loss of life expectancy that big since the last flu pandemic. So just to put it in perspective. So we've had downturns in life expectancy in this country in the past 100 years. Usually they're of the 0 0.2, 0 0.3 magnitude. So 0.7 is super big. Like 0.7 is a lot of loss in life expectancy. Black men, which is this group right here, had a three-year drop in life expectancy. Three years is like unprecedented. The only comparison to that kind of loss in life expectancy is actually among young men in World War II. Because World War II, we had a lot of young men who went off to war and died. And that resulted in comparable drop in life expectancy. We've never had, otherwise, a three-year drop in life expectancy. Now, this is particularly problematic because, of course, in large gender racial groupings, black men already have the lowest life expectancy compared to other groups. Black men already have about 10 to 12 year less life expectancy than do um, uh, white women, white men. So really, COVID affected us very unevenly with groups, people of color, black men, indigenous populations, to a lesser extent, Hispanic populations, affected much more than other populations. So what I want to talk about then is why did we get this all so wrong? Now, I could spend you know, many hours, and I would bore you all, and then you'd get mad at the club for inviting me. Um, uh, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to focus on one thing. I'm going to focus on this black-white difference, um, not only to illustrate the black-white difference, but because it actually illuminates what went wrong more broadly speaking. So, so I'm, I'm going to say, why did it all go so wrong? And in this case, I'm going to talk about the black-white difference. So two reasons for the black-white difference. Reason A, there was an inequitable and unnecessary risk of getting COVID. So let's talk about that. Well, COVID is a respiratory disorder. It's transmitted person to person. And if there was no human-to-human -human contact at all, if everybody, in an, in an extreme experiment, right, if everybody 
from March 1st, 2020, stayed at home, wrapped in a plastic bubble, there would have been no spread of COVID. I'm just doing that as a thought experiment because that's how it transmits. You get COVID by being around people. You less risk of COVID if you're not around people. So what happened in March of 2020? So here's what happened. The, this is March of 2020. There are two lines here. The gray line are people in the top 20% of wealth or income in this country. The red line is people in the bottom 20% of income. I'm just showing you this by way of illustration. Well, what happened is this. An emergency declaration is called. There's a new scary disease. It affects anybody. And the way to prevent it seems to be not to be around other people. Well, who can afford not to be around other people? It's people who have the resources to protect themselves. And what happens is the top 20% end up going home and staying home. The bottom 20% not so much. So fundamentally, the mechanics of COVID and the mechanics of our, our employment and economic structure are such that if you had the resources, you protected yourself. If you didn't, you couldn't protect yourself. And as a result, you got more COVID. You know, one question which I often ask audiences in my circles, which is really similar circles to what to, in this club, is what percent of Americans who work were working did at least part of their work, I'm gonna, I'll, ask, I'll ask this group, let me see how many of you know. What percent of Americans in, in, the, in the age of employment, okay, who worked, spent at least part of their work week in the past month working from home? Give me a guess. 60? Yeah. Sir? Yeah, I'd say 60. 60? Yes. 25, 70. Anybody else? More than half? 80. The answer is 9%. Now, why did you all give 9? Why did you all give higher answers? I'll tell you why you all give higher answers. It's the same reason I would give higher answer. Because everybody you know has worked a little bit from home. But this is the part of the challenge we've had in COVID times, is that everybody I know, like literally 100% of everybody I know has spent at least part of their time working from home. And, you know, I would, down, I would also guess like you, maybe 60, maybe 70. No, only 9%. Because we forget that the majority of the country isn't like us. The majority of the country is here, not there. And that's where we live. So that's structured who got exposed to COVID to begin with. Here's another way of looking at this. This is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is a very simple graph. It shows income and your ability to work from home. Look at this, four, four buckets, lowest 25%, et cetera. Look at this, this is perfect. This is called the dose-response relationship in epidemiology. More of this more of that. So essentially, the majority, it's only in the top 25% of income where the majority of people can work from home at all. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. The other 75% of the population, the majority of people don't have the option of working from home. So reason A for these 
gaps in, in who got COVID was because a substantial proportion of the population, the majority of the population, disproportionately representing minority groups, could not protect itself from COVID. That's reason A. Reason B is there was a difference in risk of severe COVID. So one thing is to get COVID. The other one is to get severe COVID. Remember, I told you initially I was talking about deaths, right? Severe COVID leading to death. Well, who got severe COVID? Well, we've known this right from the beginning of the pandemic. In February of 2020, the China CDC, China's work is where COVID first um, was detected, published data. These are data from the China CDC showing death rate for COVID. Well, your heart death rate for COVID if you have underlying heart disease or diabetes or respiratory disease. Age is often used, but age is a proxy for underlying illnesses. Age in and of itself is meaningless, just like race in and of itself is meaningless. You know, these are things that we have to condition ourselves to think differently in the way it's portrayed in media. You know, race is a meaningless variable. Like our, our genetic differences in our skin color is essentially negligible. Same as age and of its meaning. These are just markers of other things. In fact, one of the things that's been, has been well communicated in media is that if you have no underlying illness, you actually your risk of dying from COVID is very, very small. So severe COVID is linked to underlying disease. Well, who has more underlying disease in the country? Well, it is groups that are historically marginalized who don't have access to better health. And just to focus on the black-white difference, this is before COVID, high blood pressure or diabetes. The blue is black and the, re the red is white. Higher high blood pressure among black Americans and white Americans. Younger ages, middle ages, older ages. Younger ages, middle ages, older ages. And I could go on and show you this over and over again. So I'm using the black-white gap to illustrate the larger truths about COVID. That fundamentally, we were overexposed to COVID <coughs> because of the way we structured our economy, because of the opportunity it presented to some, but not too many, to protect ourselves from COVID. And we were sitting ducks for severe COVID because we were sicker than we needed to be. Those two reasons right there explain much of what happened in times, in times of COVID. And insofar as those two reasons were unevenly distributed, they explain intergroup differences. But those two reasons explain really what happened with COVID. So then the question becomes this. Why did we get this so wrong? And I would argue, again, there are two reasons why we got this so wrong. Reason one is that we have for a long time underinvested in what makes us healthy. Now, if you have conversations around the proverbial kitchen table in this country, and you ask people what makes you healthy, well, most people will say, that my doctor. And that's simply wrong. And perhaps I'll illustrate with a quick story. I'll tell you the story of a blues man who was from Texas, um, Blind Willie Johnson. Some of you know the blues, will know the name Blind Willie Johnson. So Blind Willie Johnson was born here in Texas in the uh, turn of the 20th century, 1900. And he was born sighted, and the story is that he lost his vision in a domestic violence incident when he was seven. Um, uh, he grew up poor, blind, black. He got married. Him and his wife were living in a small house, and the house burned down at one point. They weren't injured, but because they had no money, they actually went back to live in the charred remains of the house after the fire died down. In the 1940s, so when he was in his 40s, 
he developed malaria. Now, 1940s, malaria here was common, was quite common, as I'm sure you all know. In fact, the CDC was initially started in no small part to, to um, contain malaria in the southern states in the U.S. His wife took him to hospital, and he was turned away from hospital. And then he died. So the question is, what killed Blind Willie Johnson? What killed him? I know I have a lot of students here, and you know, I know what's happening. You're all waiting for people more senior to you to reply, but that's, that's just a bad idea because you know you're going to inherit the earth, not them. So really, you you go ahead. I'll ask the students this: What killed Blind Willie Johnson? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Yes. So to summarize, it was his whole set of conditions in his life that essentially put him at a disadvantage. Okay, it's one answer. Give me another answer. Somebody else. Yes. The disease killed him, but the doctor sped up the process. The disease killed him. So let me take both those answers. These are two excellent answers. Of course, you're both right. At a fundamental level, malaria killed him, the disease, right? You're totally right. I mean, at a fundamental level, that's why he died. Had he received treatment for the disease, he would have lived. But... You're also both entirely clear that it was the circumstances of his life that contributed to his death. Now, why is that important? Why is this important, this insight? It's important because if all we ever do is treat malaria, the disease, he is still going to die of something else tomorrow, or if not tomorrow, the next day. If all we ever do is deal only with his underlying conditions, he'll still die of malaria. Right? What the story illustrates is that you need to deal with both. You need to deal with the pathology through medicine and through clinical care, but you also need to deal with the circumstances that position us to be healthy or to be unwell. And this is fundamentally, I hope you're all realizing now, what we did wrong in time of COVID. Remember I said we did very well with vaccines and with treatment. We did terribly with everything else. So in the blind Willie Johnson metaphor, we actually did very well in treating malaria and we did terribly with everything else, which is why we failed. So in this country, we have historically consistently underinvested in everything else. See the gray here? This is, this is projection in this country all the way till 2034, leaving aside Social Security. Our spending in healthcare programs is going up. That's the light blue. That's essentially treating malaria. Our spending in everything else is going down. So that's what we are doing as a country. Now, we've been doing this long before COVID. This is nothing to do with COVID. This is a pre-COVID situation. And we have also paid the price for this in a pre-COVID situation. Well, this is our life expectancy as a country before COVID. So we, as a country, we're this reddish line. The other colorful lines are all the other rational countries. And we actually die five years earlier than all other high-income countries. So we decide as a country to live five years less. You decide that. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, I didn't make that decision. But we do, you know. These decisions are collective societal decisions through our systems and processes, which often become politics, but they're ultimately our collective decisions. And that is for a very simple reason. It's not because we don't have excellent health care, because we actually do. It's because our money is all on treating malaria and not on the other pieces. And when that's what you do, you inevitably end up with this picture. In fact, we spend more on health 
than any other country in the world. And the picture looks like this. On the x-axis is how much we spend on health. On the y-axis is life expectancy. And all I want you to see is, you see these all go together? These countries, they spend more, they get more. Except us. You see this? We spend more and get less. We like, we like tail off over here. Let me ask you this question. Can you think of any other sector where we willingly spend more and get less? Now, actually, we don't spend more on education. We actually, we actually are in the middle of the pack in spending on education. Yeah, well, it's a, actually, well, food is an interesting. Food's an interesting point, actually, and a lot of it feeds into our health as well. Um, um, the um, food is a complicated question because it becomes a question of what we subsidize and what we don't. So it's a so it's a it's it's a tricky question. Food. Military. Yeah, so I I often get the military when I ask the question. And, you know, the, the only challenge with the military is the the outcomes are are debatable as to as to when one is successful and not. So so the military, I'm sure I deal with. The bottom line is this: if if I told you that your phones cost you more than to buy the same phone, let's say, in Canada, but they're slower, hold less data, and the picture is not as clear. I bet you would think twice about buying your phone. But with health, we do this all the time. And my argument is, well, we shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. So that's reason A. Reason B is we have underinvested in what can keep us healthy. And by that, I mean the public health systems that we need when there is a crisis, the public health systems that allow us to have rapid testing and contact tracing and isolation, all of that we've underinvested in for decades. This is um, uh, state and local public health workforces. They've been going down. And even though we often say that we're going to spend more on public health, this is actually is a, the prevention fund. That's what we should have spent. We end up spending less because we end up taking away money from public health over and over again. So I'll just conclude here because then I want to get uh, questions, which is how can we do better? Well, I think we can do better by dealing with these two underinvestments. Number one is to invest in a healthy world before the next pandemic. So in my book, I use the metaphor of a ship going through a storm. We as a country are like a ship going through a storm. And you can have a ship going through a storm, right? And it has a hole, the ship has a hole in the hull. And you're like, oh, this is very bad. We're going through a storm, and water's coming into the hole, and it's very bad, and we might sink. And you pray, you do your bit. And then you make it through the storm. Now the water is calm, the ship is floating gently, and the hole is well above the waterline. So you can say, the hole's not a problem. Look, the water's not coming into it. And you forget that the next storm that comes you're going to have water pouring into that hole in the hull. So the, the point is we should actually make these changes before the next pandemic. And I've written about this quite a bit. Others have as well. This is a piece which um, I wrote in uh, U.S. News World Report called We Need a Health New Deal. And unfortunately, I wrote this in March of 2019, but I, I could have written the exact same piece today. But it uh, just goes to show how much you know, we, sort of we listen to this. But ultimately, it means dealing with these fundamental issues that actually we want to create a country where... You have the social and economic structures that protect people, make sure people have stable housing, livable wages, gender equity, freedom from violence, clean air, drinkable water, all the forces that ultimately make us healthy. That's one thing we need to do. And the second thing we need to do is to change what we talk about when we talk about health. 
and to make sure that this conversation is part of the conversation when we talk about health and about the next pandemic. This is a cover of Time magazine, 2017. A very scary cover with a picture of Ebola in the background that said, we're not ready for the next pandemic, which it's true, entirely correct. And it was a great issue of uh, Time magazine, and uh, you know, there was an essay by Bill Gates and all that. And it talked about what we need to do to deal with the next pandemic. It talked about how we need to invest in vaccines, how we need to invest in stockpiling, how we need to invest in therapeutics, how we need to invest in surveillance. Never once for a second mentioned that we need to deal with the fact that we have wage structures that will expose us unnecessarily to disease, that we have economic structures that most people will not be able to protect themselves from a pandemic. Never talked about the fact that underlying disease made us sitting ducks for severity of a pandemic. Never talked essentially about all the things that I talked about that went wrong in time of COVID. And I think what, what I've learned from COVID, many much to learn in terms of COVID, is American ingenuity was very much in full show. Remember, we did very well in the areas that we paid attention to. We did very well with vaccines. We did very well with medical treatment. We did terribly with all the other things that we don't talk about. So my mission here, the reason I came here today, the reason I wrote this book, um, this is the book, is actually to inject this into the conversation. Is to inject into the conversation that when we need to think about the next pandemic, we need to make sure that we also talk about all the other forces that fundamentally, fundamentally create help. I'll stop there. Anybody who's interested in my writing on things, I have a website which is just my name, and it has sort of writings and speaking engagements and all that. But uh, now I want to hear from you. I want to hear your comments, questions, thoughts, anything. Please. Gosh, I have so many questions. Thank Please, you so go ahead. My name is Deanna Charles. I worked in prevention for Merck. That was my career, and I'm just, you're one of my heroes, so thank you for coming. Um, how much of our poor immune systems is due to our ridiculous lifestyle and culture in America. I mean, I don't see us as a rich country. I look yeah. at Europe and they walk everywhere and they're socializing yeah. more. And how much of our poor immune system yeah. is due to just the way we live? Yeah. At the end of the day, the answer to that is most of it. Because if you think about it, you know, who we are. I mean, we're ultimately you know, carbon-based beings, human species, right? So there are two things that cause who we are. One is, let's say, genetic, which is we're born with it. And the other, just being simple, one is genetic and the other one is our life experiences, which is essentially everything you're talking about. We know the genetic factors account for relatively little, with the exception of, I mean, there are particular genetic diseases, right? There are particular genetic diseases which are single cell um, mutations, but those are really rare. Those are, I mean, I would ask you to think in your head, how many people do you know who have a, a particular disease that is transmitted genetically. In fact, very few, very few of us know very many people like that, because actually they're actually quite rare. Most of our life is determined by the food we eat, whether we're safe walking across the street, whether there is a park where one can exercise, whether the air is polluted or not, that's most of our health. So the majority of our health is driven by things that are entirely preventable. You know, you mentioned what prevention at that. Uh, Merck, let me tell one quick story about prevention that I tell in the book. I give the example in the book of firefighting. So, you know, firefighters have been with us for thousands of years. Actually, it was the Roman Empire that, that created firefighting because the Romans were building cities out of wood and they realized they kept burning down. So they're like, ah, we need a few people to hang around and make sure they can put out fires when they happen. So that's how firefighting started. They didn't change for thousands of years until about 50 years ago. 50 years ago, there was a very influential fire chief in the U.S. who said, 
well, we're just sitting around waiting for fires. Why don't we actually also play a role in preventing fires? So he actually got fire, for, um, um, uh, fire stations um, across the country to get engaged in building inspections, fire codes, etc. As a result, today, we have half as many fires as we did 50 years ago. Now, is there anybody who's going to argue that it's not a better country because we have half as many fires? Of course it's better. It's better. Not better right? We still need fire departments because there are still fires. So you still need to be able to put them out. But we're much better for the fact that we have far fewer fires. And that's the principle, right? That's the principle. That's the principle of prevention. And, you know, in the book, I, mean, I use this phrase that we were sitting ducks for COVID. Because when you have a country where you have obesity, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease that is untended to, that is a product of the world around us, when a, something, a virus like this hits, we actually have very little resilience, and that's exactly what happened. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question from yes. one of our students. Yes, please. And it actually ties into this nicely, I think. So uh, in addition, how does the climate or the environment that we're in, so heat, humidity, yeah. cold, things like that, affect the spread of disease? Yeah, so we recognize more and more that the change in climate matters more and more for a whole range of, of forces. For example, actually, our, I'm part of a team that uh, we just have a paper that's about to come out that shows how climate change has is, is an increase in temperature is responsible for, in part, for increase in opiate overdoses. Um, because what ends up happening is people's behavior changes and people's resistance or resilience to insults like taking opiates also changes and that results in more overdoses and more deaths. So that, I, I mentioned the example because that's an unexpected example, but there are examples of climate change affecting everything from mental health to physical health across the board. So I do think that climate change, I've written a little bit about this under the um, rubric of a slow burning threat. Like this is a it's something that's coming, 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 and, and we are a little bit of a proverbial frog in boiling water that, um, you know, temperatures are slowly rising and we're staying in it until it actually kills us all. So I, I actually have a lot of respect for the current movements to try to, to push forward agreements on reducing carbon emissions to um, um, reduce the accelerating pace of climate change, and I think a lot of that is actually coming from uh, Gen Z young people, which is, I think is admirable. Hi. Um, in preparation, I logged on to the Johns Hopkins data, mm -hmm. November 29th, so I don't think you can get much more current mm -hmm. than that. And I was curious to see how the U.S. death rate as a proxy for uh, all the um, contributing factors that you mentioned, how the U.S. death rate compared to other countries. Now, there's a lot of anomalies in their data because people don't keep track of the death rate to COVID mm -hmm. due to, and death rate to other yes. things and the testing. Everything is going to be different in some countries. So, But I was curious to see that the UK has uh, an unacceptably high uh, death rate due to COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, would you just say that their story is the same as ours? It's very similar, actually. Yeah. The, the, UK, the UK has been uh, has been very similar to us in terms of COVID um, throughout. In fact, there's been a lot of fumbling in predictive models and all that in time of COVID. My, my advice to all of you is if you're interested in what's going to happen in COVID next is look at what happened in the UK a few weeks ago because they've been consistently 
a few weeks ahead of us in the path of the, pan of the pandemic, just in terms of how the viral dynamics are. So the US and the UK have had very, very similar stories. And by the way, the UK is a really instructive story because, of course, they have national health service, which means everybody has access to health. And that hasn't really helped them that much. Now, why is that? Well, because the truth is, you all know that in this country there's all sorts of arguments about making sure that there's national health insurance and all that. But the truth is, the truth is that people don't die on the street in this country. That's the truth. The truth is that if somebody's very sick, a hospital will see them. And as I told you earlier, hospitals have done very well. So the fact that the UK has national health service, and the fact that they actually have not done much better than us, illustrates the limitations of clinical care in this context. That, that's not an argument, by the way, it's not an argument against what, what to my mind is a fundamental human right that everybody should be able to get to see a doctor if they need to. But it simply says that a doctor, a hospital only goes so far. Uh, thank you for coming, it's very interesting. I want to take us back to the what went right and what went wrong list. Yes. Um, and you rightly point out that you know private industry and specifically pharma did a, a great job of what went right here that's uh, remarkable. But you didn't mention any of the government entities and the what went wrong side. And let's, yeah. let's skip prior administration, but let's talk about the CDC for a minute. There's been a lot of arguments that the CDC could have done a lot of different things in the first quarter of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we, you know, we could spend many hours talking about uh, government and the public sector in this, in, in this case. The... I'm actually, I'll be excited in a few years' time when some historian writes a book that is a history of only March of 2020, just that month, because so much happened politically in that month that, that made decisions that set the course for subsequent years, which is actually very interesting. So my read is as follows, that uh, the, the virus hit at this perfect storm moment where the political system was maximally divided and it was an election year that resulted in this immediate polarization of everything. And the appointed heads of organizations like CDC were equally swept up in that. The CDC, the vast majority of people working at CDC are, are you know, staff. I mean, everybody except for the director is, a, is, a, is essentially a staff person who's there for their whole life. Um, um, but I think the CDC highest level of decision making could not escape the gravitational pull of these political forces that we're seeing everything, everything through the lens of electoral politics. And um, I, I think it's one of the most sad things about what happened in the pandemic, that we ended up you know, giving red and blue colors to all sorts of things. And, and it's, um, I, I think it really hurt us. Let me just use one concrete example. Remember I said to you at the beginning, had we all, every single American, stayed home on their couch and not moved from their couch, there would have been no spread of COVID, right? As I gave that as a thought experiment. So that's an extreme lockdown. Now, the opposite of extreme lockdown is we make no restrictions whatsoever. Everybody keeps doing everything they're doing, right? Those are the two extremes. Well, those two extremes in this country became colored politically. Like, if you are Republican, you're for everybody doing everything the way they're doing. If you're Democrat, you're for the maximal restrictions. Well, to my mind, those two positions are both absurd. This is actually absurd. Like, we make decisions about calibrating risk all the time. I'll use one example, which, uh, which I use often, which I was discussing at the dinner table. Take speed limits. I can show you a graph that very clearly shows if a speed limit is 45, this many people will die. Speed limit is 55, more people will die. Speed limit is 65, this many people will die. We as a society, 
make decisions. Like we actually make decisions about trade-offs, about trade-offs, about speed limits that allow people to, to move, and we accept the fact that there's a cost to that. We never as a country had that conversation. We never had that frank conversation. I mean, you tell me <clears throat> if you remember any politician standing up and saying, here's what we're doing. I understand there are trade-offs. I am keeping this and this functioning because I want to keep the economy running. I'm keeping this decent schools running because I want to keep children learning in schools. I understand that there results in some increased risk of transmission of the virus, but in balance, I think this is the best thing for our society. And frankly, that is exactly the job of politics. That's exactly what politics should have been doing, which is to say, to guide us on these trade-offs. But instead, like we never did that. Like on both sides, red and blue, we took these extreme positions. And I want to be very clear about this because, um, I, you know, I think, I think it's very easy, very easy to pin a lot of blame on the sort of the person who was in the White House at the time when COVID hit. And certainly a lot of blame should be pinned on that person. But I think it's too easy. I actually think, I actually think these are complex processes and what they require is balance and nuance on both sides. And I think the blue side is equally well as sort of trafficked in extremities as has the red side. It is not all or none. None of this is all or none. None of this is all about you shut down everything. It's that you shut down everything, 75% of people in the country end up being out of a job, and those are the people who already have fewer resources to sustain themselves. That's not the right thing. You know, and if I may just go on for a second, you know, I think one of the biggest travesties of the moment has been our school shutdown. The fact that we shut down schools despite the fact, in, in much of the country, despite the fact that we know that children less likely to get COVID, children rarely get severe COVID, children don't transmit COVID, and we've delayed children's social and educational advancement by about a year. I think that's a real pity. I think that's a real crying shame. I would like to explore for you, I'd like you to explore more about what the role of the government was, if any, in developing the vaccines, uh, because it seems to me this is an incredible peri uh, period of time that was used to develop the vaccine, only a year. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not meant to be a political question, yeah, yeah. but what I'm asking, what is Operation Warp Speed? Yeah. What uh, Did it play a part, and mm -hmm. what is it? Yeah, no, I think there's no question that Operation Warp Speed played a part, and uh, what uh, Operation Warp Speed did is it um, brought, fundamentally, fundamentally, it brought the leading uh, private sector actors who were involved in vaccine developments together and gave them guarantees of, uh, guarantees of purchase ahead sight unseen. That's fundamentally what it did. Fundamentally what it did is it allowed the, the, the private sector actors who have their own incentives, right, from a profit loss, and essentially was guaranteeing them that if they went ahead and pushed ahead, that they would actually, their downside would be minimized. And that made an enormous difference. So I actually think Operation Warm Speed made an enormous difference. I think it was a perfect example of government working with the private sector. I think it was fundamentally private sector actors, those companies that actually did, but the government paved the way. That if the private sector was left to its own devices, they would have been much more conservative in what they did in, in developing vaccines. So I actually think that was a really nice example of how a pro-private se pro sector approach really helped the country, and I think we should be celebrating that. We have time for one more question? Or two. We'll have Maisie and Liz. Okay. There you go. You did get the final uh, sponsor. Okay. So speaking of vaccines, uh, 
we, we all have, uh, the, the country's polarized right now. We're all having these conversations with family members about various things. How can we have the conversation with those in our families and our circles about who are anti-vax? Yeah. What do we tell them? Yeah, so um, before I answer the question, let me just flip the assumption on, on its head for a second because there's been a lot of conversation about um, how there has been vaccine hesitancy and all that. But actually, I look at the data as a success. So over the age of 65, 99% of Americans have had at least one shot. I actually think that's extraordinary in, um, in a pretty quick period of time. So the vaccine hesitancy tends to be sort of in the middle age groups. The reason for it, leaving, I mean, there, there are many sort of, uh, there are many flavors of vaccine hesitancy, but the, but the predominant flavor of vaccine hesitancy is I'm 35, and I know, I've read the papers, I know that actually if I get COVID, it's not going to be such a big deal, I'm not going to die from it, therefore I don't want to take any unnecessary risks. That's the argument. The only counter to that argument is a very simple one. It's not about your risk, it's about the risk of people around you. That, yes, it, that's true, everything you're saying is true, but fundamentally, you being a, you having COVID without knowing it is going to expose people who are older, who have underlying disease, who you're not aware of, and you're putting them at risk. So actually, taking the vaccine is a pro-social act. I mean, there is this flavor of vaccine hesitancy, which is, I don't know what I'm putting in my body and all that. I mean, the truth is, I'm not sure how to deal with that, because other than to point out there's a bit of hypocrisy in that argument, because we put stuff in our body that's approved by agencies we don't understand all the time. Like, all, like, like, you know, we do this all the time. So people who say, you know, well, I don't know. It's like, well, come on. I mean, have you taken an Advil recently? I mean, why, why are you trusting Advil? So, you know, I have talked to some people who say, no, I only ever eat organic hydroponic vegetables that I grow myself. To which then my answer to that is like, then I have no answer. Because like, okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean if, that's, if that's the case, if, like, if, all, if you're only eating, you know, the, the things that you grow to your own hands, then I, then I have no counter. But those people are very, very few. And I think it's okay if those people don't get vaccinated. Um, but ultimately, it's a pro-social argument. Ultimately, it's, it, it's not about, is it going to affect you? It's about, it's affecting the people around you. And the question I have is on the development of vaccine. And if you would comment, please, that it has taken many decades to even yes. arrive at a vaccine for against AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we had one yet. No. And yet, uh, the development of COVID vaccine uh, came about so quickly. Yeah. Uh, it sound like a pure you know, success story. If you yeah, yeah. There's a big, there's a big difference in uh, the, 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 the difference is actually very simple. That uh, COVID is a coronavirus, which you've heard, which essentially looks like a ball with spikes. And the spike protein is consistent across all COVID. So as a result, it became possible to develop antibodies against that spike protein. Um, HIV is, doesn't have such similar features, and the surface mutates all the time. So it's been very difficult to develop vaccines that get HIV. That's, that's been the difference. The reason, by the way, Omicron, there's been this Omicron panic lately, which I do think is vastly overblown, but leaving that aside. But the reason for the panic is because this mutation has more mutations on, um, on the surface of the coronavirus. So there's this theoretical fear that as a result, the um, antibodies from vaccines will be less effective. That's the reason for Omicron. So it's like it's the same, it's the same biologic reality. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.